Matthew 28. This is going to be verses 1 to 15. Let's go ahead and let's go ahead and pray. Father, we do just thank you for this day that you've given us. We just recognize that you sent your Son into this world to die, and that He has risen again. And so we we thank you for that. We just proclaim and announce again that you are alive. That no matter what this world says in so many different ways, but that you are alive and you reign. So I just ask that you would help us to really see that today. Holy Spirit, that you would open our, our eyes to see this, this truth and to be happy in this news. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we're a week away, like I said, from being, from being done with the book of Matthew. And it means that this morning we get to look at the best news in the world that is for the world. The bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Christianity rises and falls on whether or not Jesus is dead or alive. If He's dead, what we're doing here every Sunday morning is simply kumbayaing our way to our eventual and certain meaningless death and wasting our lives living a fairy tale. If Jesus is just a good example of a life worth living and a teacher worth following, He's not that different from any other religious teacher worth following. He cannot rescue humanity from our greatest fears, our greatest enemies. We can try, attempt to follow the Sermon on the Mount, to follow His teachings that we've been reading about. But apart from the resurrection, all of us are ultimately enslaved to Satan's sin and death. They rule and they reign if Jesus is not alive. And without the resurrection, we will remain crushed under the weight of things like we saw this week. Mass shootings that suddenly kill and shatter lives more and more in our nation. Cancer that's no respecter of persons. Sexual brokenness that destroys families, enslaves individuals. Countless injustices in all of history that will never be made right if Jesus is still dead. The creeping feeling of inner shame in which all of us try to hide and cover up that that will never completely go away if Jesus is still dead. Some of these things we can kind of work through, we can kind of seek to restore. For instance, things like the burning of paradise and the loss of buildings, they can be built again. But the loss of life can't. People being burned alive can't. And so without the resurrection of Christ, there's no rectification for death and evil in this world. But if Jesus is alive, if the crucified Jesus of Nazareth is also the resurrected Son of God, then we can have real hope. We can have tangible hope 
in this world. If Jesus is alive, our lives in the entire universe is headed toward a goal, a purpose, the appearing of Jesus Christ, the God-man who will judge the living and the dead and share His glory with everyone and anyone who believes upon Him. So the historical truth that Jesus lived, died, was buried, rose again on the third day means that He is the victor, that He is victorious, and that this world is not ultimately a tragedy, but a story of the triumph of God. The triumph of God over Satan, sin, and death. And so even though it's not Easter, Sunday, this morning, we're going to fasten ourselves to the news recounted by Matthew and told by two women named Mary way back in 80, 30-ish somewhere that this Jewish man Jesus, crucified by the Romans, is alive. And the Gospels aren't unpacking all of the meaning of the resurrection for us. Their main concern is to show us that it happened, that it actually happened. That's Matthew's aim. We'll notice how often in this passage he uses the term see. He wants us to see that this is true. But before we get to that, let's remind ourselves of where we've been. So these last several years, verse by verse, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. And at the very beginning of the book, if you remember, we're told that this is, quote, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So right from the gate, we're told that this book is about Jesus, who was born in the lineage of two of the greatest heroes of Israel, Abraham the patriarch and David the king. And so Matthew wants us to know that Jesus came through a specific people according to God's word throughout history. And this is important because God has made promises. He made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 that through his seed, the nations of the earth would be blessed. God made promises to David in 2 Samuel 7 that David's kingdom and throne would last forever, that it wouldn't end. And Abraham and David never saw these promises fulfilled. And so Matthew's point is to show us through all of these chapters in the book that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's hopes and that he is Israel's Messiah and king. He is Abraham's seed. He is the son of David. But what's so surprising as we continue on throughout the book is that Jesus' kingdom and reign is established in a way that God's people would not have imagined. He's constantly in conflict with the leaders in Israel. We spend a lot of time in that, especially around Matthew 23. And He calls down judgment upon them. And He calls down judgment upon the temple that is going to be torn down. That he associates with sinners. That he goes about healing the hurting. He calls the marginalized. He even predicts his own death and resurrection, which no one really believes. And which one of his closest friends, Peter, finds ridiculous. 
So Jesus rebukes him sharply as speaking for Satan. So Matthew shows us that God has a funny way of sending his Messiah. That Jesus is David's royal son who ruled like a servant, died like a slave. And that he's Abraham's seed who was forming a people of blessing composed not just of Israelites, but of Gentiles as well. And all of this has come to a head the last several weeks as we've been confronted with how the Jewish leaders and Roman Gentiles go about executing Jesus in the worst, most appalling way possible on a cross. Ted recounted for us the process of crucifixion and the physical suffering of Jesus. He did so with the audible sounds of hammer. Bob showed us the meaning of Jesus' God-forsakenness. And Brad showed us how Jesus' burial was the evidence that he was truly dead. And all that the Romans did to guard and to secure his tomb, to make sure it stayed that way. And so all this should remind us that the man we worship was totally unexpected by his own people. And he died utterly shamed in the eyes of the world. The entire scene leading up to and the process of crucifixion was meant to humiliate Jesus. To entertain the people in a violent and sickening way. So this is one of the reasons that the cross is such a scandal. We actually say that our allegiance and that our lives are built on a crucified man who died totally naked, exposed on one of the greatest instruments of torture the world has ever invented. Reserved for slaves. Reserved for those who were deemed criminals of the state. Fleming Rutledge writes, If Jesus' demise is construed merely as a death, Even as a painful, tortured death, the crucial point will be lost. Crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity, the last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment. Degradation was the whole point. She says elsewhere that it was to show that Jesus died as a nothing. That he was an absolute nothing. To be picked apart by birds, potentially, if he would have stayed on the cross. That in the eyes of the world, he's shameful. But in reality, in reality, Jesus, his act of crucifixion, was despising the shame, was conquering death. Because he is alive. Because he rose from the dead in glory and has been seated at the right hand of God and installed as King of kings and Lord of lords of all of the nations. That's who Jesus is. So that our world is no longer defined just by ultimate grief and sadness and death. But that it's been exchanged for ultimate glory and hope. And this message of hope begins unexpectedly again 
with the witness of women. Matthew 28, 1. Let's look at the verse. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So the news of resurrection is first received by Mary Magdalene, a formerly demon-possessed woman. Seven demons. And another Mary, the other Mary. So probably not the ones you and I'd pick to be the first carriers of the gospel message. The title, The Other Mary, doesn't exactly ring with personal significance. And having a past filled with demon possession doesn't exactly lend oneself to being trustworthy with evidence. We would destroy her in the courtroom. But it's these two who go to see Jesus' tomb at daybreak. And what's even more surprising is that Matthew gives us these details at all. In that culture, you don't support a radical claim like resurrection by the testimony of women. If you're going to invent a wild story more akin to something you'd find in the young adult section of a bookstore, these are not your star witnesses. The Greco-Roman world found women to be gullible in religious matters and especially prone to superstitious fantasy and excessive in religious practice. An early 2nd century Christian critic named Celsus, so this is early, said the following, Only foolish and low individuals and persons devoid of perception and slaves and women and children of whom the teachers of the divine word wish to make converts. He even described one of the women in the scene as half-frantic. So we have this stereotype. Emotional women, prone to exaggeration, Jesus is alive. Not exactly politically correct. And even the Jewish view had a low regard for women's testimony during this time. We've seen other places in this gospel, particularly in the way that Jewish men cast off women easily in divorce, that their status was low. Yet it's women that God chose to be the first news broadcasters of his son's resurrection. Therefore, one of the proofs, one of the evidences that Jesus is alive is that this story could not have just been invented in that ancient world. Because no one then would have invented this kind of story to support Jesus being alive. If you're going to make it up, at least have some men there. Another unexpected aspect of this account is that in Jewish circles in Jesus' day, some believed, and I say some, because remember Pharisees and Sadducees, Sadducees don't, but some believed in a kind of general resurrection, but it came in the future. It came at the very end of all things. Remember the debate Jesus had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Matthew 22, about whose wife would a woman be married to if all seven husbands had died? Whose wife was she going to be in the resurrection? The resurrection, general, at the end. Resurrection wasn't going to be happening in stages in their mind. And so this is one of the reasons why, despite the fact that Jesus said, 
We've read that in earlier chapters, especially as Matthew has been coming to an end. Despite the fact that Jesus said he was going to rise in three days, that the disciples never really got it. Which all this gives weight to the fact that Jesus really did rise. Former Pharisaic Jews like Paul and other Jewish disciples wouldn't make this up because it doesn't fit their theology. It's supposed to happen at the end. So no one was sitting around expecting Jesus to really rise from the dead three days later. And so the women who come to the tomb don't come thinking he's going to be alive. So the Marys are on the scene to, as the verse says, see the tomb, which serves as a grim reminder that Jesus is dead. They've arrived to tend to the corpse of Jesus, but they're about to find out that there's no corpse to be tended to. And I love this because when sin entered the world, God made his first gospel promise to a woman that her seed would crush the devil's head. And here he is revealing the fulfillment first to women that he has done it. Women get the promise. Women got the fulfillment. The promised child of a woman has conquered the enemy. Death is dead. The body is not there. And so that news starts off with a jolt. Verse 2. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So a history-altering and cataclysmic event had occurred. No wonder a great earthquake takes place. Apocalypse was arriving on earth. And so this was not just the dawn of a new week after the Sabbath like it was in the old creation, but this was the dawn of a new week in the new creation. The last days were here. The end had begun. Resurrection had happened now, not later. The age to come was invading the present evil age. And an angel is here to give the news. Because that's what they do. That's what angels do. That's their job. They show up, they scare everybody, and they deliver a message. And we see that they're pretty strong. So the angel rolls back the very stone that the Roman soldiers on Pilate's orders had used to make sure that no shenanigans could happen with Jesus' body. Rolls it back. That's what God does. God loves shenanigans. He loves to disrupt our best attempt to keep Him sealed up, quiet, shut down. And I love that the angel rolled the stone back and sat down. The angel knew that God had acted. That God was rolling back death and its effects. And that rest had come to the world. So he rolls it back and he sits victoriously, relaxing. Verse 3 and 4. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So the description of what the angel looks like is typical, as we've read 
throughout the Bible of supernatural angels. White lightning. It's what they look like. Shocking. More shocking than some of us at the river bar on a hot day. In all seriousness, this reveals that there's something awe-inspiring happening here. That the presence of God is here. Totally pure appearance. The radiance of holiness has enveloped this place of death. Decay. Notice the response of the guards. They're overcome with debilitating fear that makes them faint. They're shaken to the core like someone in a horror movie, terrified at the unimaginable that they've just witnessed. So the disturbance likely made their body convulse, some of the imagery behind the word, into a kind of catatonic state, scared to death, as we like to say. One commentator points out the irony here. Those assigned to guard the corpse themselves became corpses, while the one they guarded is already alive. God's sense of humor, again. So Roman power, the strongest military in the world, rendered powerless by God. They can do nothing about it. Man's attempt to secure and make certain the death of Jesus is no match for God. Verse 5, But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. Now certainly the women were scared too. We read that later. But the angels had a better message for them than the guards at least got. Because they were looking for Jesus. You see that up there? I know that you seek Jesus. So he tells them, don't be afraid. And this is encouraging. We never have to be afraid when we're genuinely looking for Jesus. And later, to make it clearer, Jesus says the same thing to them. Don't be afraid. Notice too that the angel recalls Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus who was crucified. The end of verse 5. One scholar explained how the Greek there is in the perfect tense indicating that Jesus remains the crucified one. So the angel is drawing attention to the form of his death. Even though Jesus is about to be announced as risen, it doesn't negate his crucifixion. And so we boast in the crucified and resurrected Jesus. The resurrection is central. The death, of course, is meaningless if he's not alive, but we have to hold both. We boast in the cross. We boast in the resurrection. He is the crucified one at the end in Revelation. Later in other Gospels, he has the marks of the crucifixion. It doesn't just go away to be put out of our minds. So practically, it means we hold both a theology of hope, a theology of glory, and a theology of suffering. Both at the same time. We can't eliminate one 
or the other. Verse 6, the angel still speaking. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. And so the angel tells them that Jesus isn't there. And to assure them, he invites them to come see the place where he was. It doesn't just say, just take my word for it. Which he probably would if an angel showed up. But he says, hey, come and see. He wants them to see it for themselves. The body is gone. Why? Because the body is alive. The good news isn't abstract principles. It's about living, it's about a living embodied person. The person of Jesus. And so once they've seen this, apparently, the divine messenger of good news has a mission for these women to become the first human messengers of God's good news to the world that Jesus is alive. And so as the angel carried God's message to them, God calls them to spread the message to his disciples. Verse 7, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Here we have that rhythm of come and see, go and tell. Come and see, go and tell. They're invited to see so they can tell. So the gospel is meant to be seen and believed and then spread. That's what the gospel does. Come see it. Believe that it's true. Go tell others. Jesus made the promise that he was going to go before them. And so they're reminding them of that. Verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. So the two Marys get out of there fast. It's obedience. Said go. And they do so with mixed emotions, fear and great joy. See how we get a greater magnitude of joy than fear in this passage? Fear was present, but the joy overrode the fear. Fear and great joy. So just as there was a great, the Greek mega earthquake in their external world, there was a great mega blast of joy in their hearts that he is actually alive. And so they're off and running to tell the disciples, but on their way they run into somebody else. They run into Jesus. Or let's flip it to be more accurate to what the Scripture says. It wasn't so much that they met Jesus, but that Jesus met them. We almost got that right there. And behold, Jesus met them. There it is. God's meeting us is always prior to our meeting Him. He's always first. Grace is always first. So the next two verses are unique to Matthew's resurrection story out of all of the other four Gospels. Verse 9 and 10. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. 
Greetings. Sounds a bit archaic. We don't normally use it in everyday occurrences when we run into people on the street, but it's just a common way of saying hello. Hi. Some have even translated it, good morning. Quite casual of Jesus for such an extraordinary event. And so the women respond to him by coming up to him and taking hold of his feet and worshiping him. And so this taking hold is them gripping Jesus' feet. And if you were to meet a dead loved one alive, you would do more than hug them, you would seize them in such a way to confirm that they are really alive. They're here right before you. They're no longer dead. And so they're grasping his resurrected ankles, heels, tarsals, metatarsals. He is there. Fully alive. And notice the emphasis again on the senses throughout this passage. We have touch, seeing, hearing. Voices are spoken, words are heard, bodies are seen, felt, and touched. Matthew wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is really alive. He's not a spirit. He's not an apparition. He's not a ghost. He's not someone's hallucination. He's a man. Alive. Alive as the person right next to you. He's more than a man. He's worthy of worship. Jesus is God's divine Son. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So they worship Him. Verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So Jesus recaps what the angel had told them. It's one thing to hear an angel say, do not be afraid, but to hear Jesus say it would be another thing altogether. So the proper response to Jesus' resurrection is not to fear. It's a command that's given twice in this passage. Jesus wants them to walk in fearlessness and to experience His joy. What an unbelievable encouragement to us. The primary goal of this sermon, and I think of Matthew's goal, is to show and to announce that this happened. But secondarily, it's to remind us that because of this, because this happened, we do not have to fear. We can live in fearlessness and joy. One theologian wrote this, The Easter message tells us that our enemies, sin, the curse, and death are beaten. Ultimately, they can no longer start mischief. They still behave as though the game were not decided, the battle not fought. We must still reckon with them. As we know again from this week. But fundamentally, we must cease to fear them. We must cease to fear them anymore. If you have heard the Easter message, you can no longer run around with a tragic face and lead the humorless existence of a man who has no hope. One thing still holds, and only this one thing is really serious, that Jesus is the victor. We are invited and summoned to take seriously the victory of God's glory in this man, Jesus, and to be joyful in Him. 
then we may live in thankfulness and not in fear. End quote. Jesus puts another layer on the reason these women can have joy, aside from the fact that he's there, right in front of them. And he does it by saying something amazing about the disciples who aren't even there. He calls the disciples his brothers. Don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers. He doesn't call them losers, runaways, wimps, failures. He identifies them with himself. They're a part of his family. The women nor the disciples would fully get the meaning, but he is marking them, write them, as in Christ, in him. They're his brothers. He is the elder brother, the one who went before. And he identifies himself with them. They don't deserve it. That's what he does. And so remember, these disciples are probably wallowing not only in grief, but also some guilt and some shame. And they don't even know it yet, but Jesus is talking about them behind their back. Not the way that we do it, but he's talking about them as his brothers. He could have said, hey, women, you're here. Where are the other guys? But he doesn't. And so you and I may be used to people bailing on us at our worst, but this is not what Jesus does. He identifies with them. He names their true identity in Him. They may have bailed on Him, but He hasn't bailed on them. And so this is the gracious heart of Jesus on display. This is the good news of the meaning of the Gospel. Let's look at the next paragraph. 11 to 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So in those first few words, we find that the women again obeyed Jesus while they were going. He said, go, they go. They're on mission. They're going to report to the disciples. But the guards are also running and going to report to someone else, the religious leaders. And so while the women were on a gospel mission, these verses reveal that there's a false gospel mission in the works already. They're basically two stories about the world. Jesus is alive or he's not. Jesus rose from the dead or it's all a big hoax and it's a myth. It's God's message to the world and his son or it's man's message to the world. Which one are you going to believe? And look at the difference between this false message made up that the disciples stole the body of Jesus While the true gospel is free and produced by God alone, without man's help whatsoever, 
Man killed him. God is alive. While the true message is free and produced by God alone, the false message costs something and is invented by man. It's formed and spread by human bribery and money. It springs from fear to get the guards out of trouble and the benefit of the religious establishment to kind of squelch this whole Jesus thing. It doesn't spring from joy like the message that God gives. But it turns out that bribery works. The power of empire and religious corruption is effective. Because as one author stated, Justin Martyr, who flourished about A.D. 70, said that the Jews dispersed the story by means of special messengers sent to every country. So all the way in 170, this message had been spread all over the place. There's another reason why this is an unlikely story and that this did not happen. Again, meaning that the resurrection is false, that first paragraph, and that this is actually the true one. Grave stealing was a serious crime in the ancient world. It could be accompanied by the death penalty. And the disciples had already basically bailed on Jesus. Peter denied him. Many others fled. They were afraid. According to Matthew, the only ones in sight were many women. That's what it says in 2755. So despite their earlier claims, the disciples' earlier claims, they weren't exactly itching to risk their lives for Jesus. So going to the grave to steal the body was probably not an option. They left. They were afraid. So something had to happen for them to be ready to die for Jesus. And of course, something did happen. Jesus is alive. And many of them died to share that news. But that sure wasn't the way it was looking like here. And they could do that because they knew that their destiny wasn't based on a wish. It wasn't a hallucination. They had seen the glory of the resurrected Lord, which we don't get to all see it here. We'll see some of it next week. But they'd seen the glory of the resurrected Lord and they knew that He had truly removed their sin and their shame because He was alive. They knew death was not their ultimate destiny, but eternal life on a new heavens and a new earth was. They could live in a fallen world and suffer because they had already died and their life was hidden with Christ in God. And one day they knew that they would be revealed like He was. That when Jesus would appear, they would appear like Him. They would share the glory of a resurrection body. And that's our destiny too. If you trust Christ, that's your destiny. It's glory. It's not the shame that you feel. It's glory. That will be the real tangible thing. The most real thing about you will be sharing in the glory of Jesus Christ. If you trust Him. And so we can brim with real and tangible hope. And we need it. This world needs it. Your day yesterday probably needed it. 
the news shows us constantly that we need hope that is real, that is not in a politician, that is not in a new law, that is not in whatever else. It's not in a better day because there may not be better days. It's in Jesus. He is the hope. He is alive. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He rules and He reigns. And one day death will completely die forever. Be gone. And so there is no other hope. This news has changed everything. So any version of Christianity that is dehumanizing is not Christianity. We're not just spiritual people. Communion shows us the tangibility of what has happened and reminds us that one day it will be just as real as the grape juice, the cracker. That we will look like that. Not because of something we did, but because of something that God has done. That He is alive. So we're not simply after just a spiritual experience. We are participating in the real life of another person, the body and blood of our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So let's do that. Let's participate in that.